All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton here, Wrestling With Theology, standing in the confessional corner as we continue our trek through Apology Article 5. This week, going through paragraphs 195 to 212, where Melanchthon berates the adversaries over their demand for doubt. And that's exactly what the Roman theologians are talking about. They are demanding that you doubt your salvation and your forgiveness. And they start off right away in paragraph 195. It is clear why we find fault with the adversary's doctrine about good works rewarded because of God's generosity. The decision is very easy. First, the adversaries do not even mention faith, that we please God through faith for Christ's sake. Rather, they imagine that good works, worked by the aid of the habit of love, make a righteousness worthy of to please God by itself and also worthy of eternal life. So they have no need of Christ as mediator. What else is this than to transfer Christ's glory to our works? It means we would please God because of our works, not because of Christ. But this robs Christ of the glory of being the mediator. He is the mediator forever and not merely in the beginning of justification. Paul also says that if one justified in Christ seeks righteousness elsewhere, he affirms that Christ is a minister of sin, Galatians 2.17. That is, that he does not fully justify. What the adversaries teach is most silly. They teach that good works merit grace because of God's mercy. They mean that after be the beginning of justification, if conscience is terrified, which happens, grace must be sought through a good work and not through faith in Christ. All right. So let's look at this real quick. The first rejection that Melanchthon has for the Roman theology of good works is that the Roman theologians never mention faith. Not at all. It is all about works being formed and guided by the habit of love, which we've talked about previously, they have this idea of faith formed by love, that this is the point of love justifying us, because it is love that is what forms faith. But that is not what we have. And Galatians 2, Paul says it succinctly, as Melanchthon paraphrases, that if one justified in Christ seeks righteousness elsewhere, anywhere else other than Christ, he affirms that Christ is a minister of sin, that Christ does not fully justify. And if Christ does not fully justify, what was the point of him going to the cross? What was him dying for the forgiveness of sins? What is that to us if it's not the full atonement price for our sins? It then leaves us in that realm where we must doubt our own salvation, that we've done enough good works. And this is the idea of the scales, that God is going to bring out the old-fashioned scales where you put your sins on one side and you put your good works on the other side and you pray that your good works outweigh your bad works so you can get into heaven. That's not how God has declared his judgment day. That is not how Jesus has said justification happens. That is not how eternal life is rewarded. Eternal life is not something that is waiting for us in the future. It's what we have now as baptized Christians. It's what we have today. 
in part. A small portion of it, I grant you, but it is ours today, a present reality. We go on in paragraph 198. Second, the doctrine of the adversaries leaves consciences in doubt so that they never can be quieted. This is so because the law always accuses, even in good works. For always the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, Galatians 5.17. How will an unbelieving conscience have peace if it believes that for the sake of one's own work it ought now to please God and not for Christ's sake? What work will it find? What will it trust as worthy of eternal life if, indeed, hope begins from merits? Against these doubts, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1 We should be firmly convinced that we are granted righteousness and eternal life for Christ's sake. He says about Abraham, In hope he believed against hope. Romans 4.18 So the second one just firmly lays it out there. The Roman theologians want people to stay in doubt. It's a control issue. It's nothing more than that. If they can keep you doubting whether you've been good enough, then they can get you to do more and more and more things. But what does Paul say in Romans? Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We are at peace with God because we have been justified by faith, not by our works, but by the fact that Christ has died for us and that we believe in that promise. And so he also cites Abraham. In hope, he believed against hope, Paul says in Romans 4.18. What is he hoping about? He's hoping in the miracle that would happen that a 99-year-old man would cause an 89-year-old woman to conceive a child. And that when they were 100 and when they were 90, they would have a child to take care of. That promised child that they've been waiting for for 25 years since the first promise that God made to Abraham and Ur of the Chaldees. A long time to wait. But what? In hope he believed against hope using hope in two different ways there as we have the hope that is the Christian hope but then the second one being the wish that I hope this will happen that not being too sure about it being in doubt about it but Abraham firmly believed that God would fulfill his promise and that's exactly what Paul wants us to to do as well, to firmly believe that God fulfills every promise. All right, moving on to point three in paragraph 200. How will a conscience know when a work was done by the inclination of this habit of love so that it is possible to conclude that the work merits grace in a wholly deserving way? This very distinction has been created to dodge the scriptures. It teaches that people merit grace at one time in a merely agreeable way and at another time in a wholly deserving way. As we have said above, the intention of the one who works does not matter. Hypocrites in their security simply think their works are worthy and that they are regarded righteous. On the other hand, terrified consciences have doubt about all works, and for this reason continually seek other works. For this is what it means to merit in a merely agreeable way. 
It means to doubt, and without faith, to work until despair takes place. In short, all that the adversaries teach about this matter is full of errors and dangers. So we have, again, this wanting to have the doubts circulating throughout your mind as you go from one to another to another, hoping that maybe this one will do it. Maybe this one. Or not, no, maybe this one now. How will you ever be secure in your knowledge that this work has done the job? Or if you'll have to have another one. Or if you have to go through a long string of them. That's the point of the terrified conscience. They never know. They don't know what to do. All they can do is turn to Jesus and hope in both a good and bad way that Jesus will actually take care of it and has actually done it all for us. Because even in the midst of all of the grand teaching on the deathbed, every Roman theologian, every adversary that had written against the Augsburg Confession still has to rely on Jesus taking care of them not their works. Every last one of them will go and place their soul in Jesus' hands, that he is the one who has done it all, not them. But until then, they think they can do it throughout life. All right, continuing on in paragraphs 201 to 204, the fourth and final point that Melanchthon wants to bring out. The entire church confesses that eternal life is attained through mercy. Augustine speaks this way on grace and free will. There he speaks about the works of the saints completed after justification. God leads us to eternal life not by our merits, but according to his mercy. He says in his Confessions, Book 9, Woe to the life of man, however much may be worthy of praise, if it be judged with mercy removed. And Cyprian, in his treatise on the Lord's Prayer, says this, Lest anyone should flatter himself that he is innocent, and by exalting himself should perish the more deeply, he has instructed and taught that, his sins, that he sins daily, and that he is told to for ask forgiveness daily for his sins. But the subject is well known and has very many and very clear testimonies in Scripture and in the Church Fathers. They all declare with one mouth that even though we have good works, yet in these very works we need mercy. Faith, looking upon this mercy, cheers and consoles us. The adversaries teach wrongly when they praise merits and add nothing about this faith that takes hold of mercy. For as we have said before, the promise and faith mutually agree with each other. The promise is grasped only through faith. So we say that the promised mercy agrees with the requirement of faith and cannot be taken hold of without faith. So we justly find fault with the doctrine about wholly deserving merit, since it teaches nothing of justifying faith. It also hides Christ's glory and office as mediator. We should not be regarded as teaching anything new in this matter. The church fathers have clearly handed down the doctrine that we need mercy even in good works. So the fourth and final argument is that the church has always taught this. The church has always taught that Christ is the mediator. It is through his mercy that we receive eternal life and not through our works. This is a recent invention and aberration of the devil that has been brought into the church in the Middle Ages. And again, it is 
the idea either of bringing philosophy into it as the best construction of bringing philosophy into the Christian faith, or the worst construction being that just downright paganism and trying to make the Christian faith look like all the rest of the faiths in the world, which if you read the Old Testament, you see how well that works for the children of Israel. It doesn't. All right, so we're going to keep going on into paragraph 205. Scripture also often teaches the same. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Psalm 143, verse 2. This passage denies absolutely, even to all saints and servants of God, the glory of righteousness if God does not forgive but judges and convicts their hearts. For when David boasts in other places about his righteousness, he speaks about his own cause against the persecutors of God's word. He does not speak of his personal purity. He asks that God's cause and glory be defended. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Psalm 7, 8. We saw that earlier when we looked at Psalm 7 in our Digging Deeper segment. Again, we'll get to it. Likewise, in Psalm 130, verse 3, he says that no one can endure God's judgment. If God were to mark sins, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? I become afraid of all my suffering, Job 9.28. If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit, Job 9, verses 30 and 31. Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from sin, Proverbs 20, verse 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, 1 John 1.8. In this series of passages, it reminds us of the mercy that is talked about throughout the scriptures, beginning with Psalm 143, where David says, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you, and even no one dead is righteous before you. It is only through Christ's mercy, through the mercy of God and his righteousness, that we are declared righteous. And even when David talks about his righteousness in the Psalms as we go further and further and digging deeper. He's only talking about his righteousness against his enemies, his righteousness against the persecutors of God's word, not his own personal purity. David is not saying, not asking God to judge him according to his own integrity and his own purity because he knows he will be condemned. Just like we have the passages from Job and 1 John. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And those who deceive themselves are most to be pitied in this life. All right, going on and finishing up this week in paragraphs 208 to 212. We have two different things going on here as we have the Lord's Prayer being talked about, but then also Daniel and his prayers. So we continue on. In the Lord's Prayer, the saints ask for the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, even the saints have sins. The innocent shall not be innocent. Numbers 14, 18. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4, 24. Be silent all flesh before the Lord. Zechariah 2, 13. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. 
Isaiah 40, verses 6 and 7. Namely, flesh and righteousness of the flesh cannot endure God's judgment. Jonah 2.8 also says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That is, all confidence is empty except confidence in mercy. Mercy delivers us. Our own merits, our own efforts do not. So Daniel also prays, For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel 9, 18 and 19. So Daniel teaches us in praying to seize mercy, that is to trust in God's mercy and not to trust in our own merits before God. We also wonder what our adversaries do in prayer. If the ungodly people ever ask anything of God, if they declare that they are worthy because they have love and good works and ask for grace as a debt, they pray precisely like the Pharisee who says, I am not like other men, Luke 18, 11. He who prays for grace in this way does not rely upon God's mercy and treats Christ with disrespect. After all, he is our high priest who intercedes for us. So prayer relies on God's mercy when we believe that we are heard for Christ's sake. He is our high priest, as he himself says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John 14, 13 and 14. Without this high priest, we cannot approach the Father. All right, so with summarizing this, he goes back to the statement in the second point that he made from Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have access to God the Father through faith. Not faith in our works, but faith in His mercy. As even the saints have sins. And saints here not only means those that have been canonized by the Roman Catholic Church, those who we hold commemorations for, but also you and me, as we are simul justus et peccator, simultaneously saint and sinner. We are saints because we are forgiven by our Lord. And we continue to ask daily for forgiveness in the Lord's Prayer because we daily sin. We daily need that forgiveness. That's why Jesus gives us that prayer in the first place, because we daily need it. Because if we didn't need it, everything would be taken for granted. You know it, I know it. We would take the entire world for granted, just as those who seek a socialist viewpoint of everybody just bringing everything together and we'll just all share equally. Yeah, that doesn't work. Uh, and we've seen that over and over again through history. But... The point is, you are a sinner. You are also a saint. Because you have been baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of that, you have the freedom to come before God and pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And the whole rest of the prayer. I know I'm jumping around. But the point is, we can only do that because we have faith. Because our faith is solid. Not questioning 
whether it's good enough. Not questioning whether we can boldly walk into God's presence or kind of just crawl or shuffle in. No, we get to walk boldly into God's presence and say, Father, I need your help. I need your mercy today. Because that's us every day. All right, that's enough for the confessional corner this week. Next week, we will get into continuing on about salvation being from God's mercy. And salvation cannot be found anywhere else as Melanchthon continues to go on on this topic, as he does for a little bit longer on everything else in Apology 5, especially in regards to faith, hope, and love. But the good news is, we should be out of Apology 5 by the end of September. And that's the good news. Uh, the bad news is, then we go on into what is the church and Articles 7 and 8. But we'll get to that when we get there. But until then, this is Pastor Doug Minton, wishing you God's richest blessings, encouraging you to continue to listen to the Confessional Corners, the Digging Deepers, the Moments of Meditation, and even the Pro Wrestling America as well. As all of them but the Pro Wrestling America are designed to help strengthen your faith and to encourage you, Pro Wrestling America is designed for you to have a little fun with me as I run a fantasy wrestling league. So, but until next time, this is Pastor Dugman wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology this week. Amen.